Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. Here. All right, so I'm like eight or nine days late, but better late than never, yes? Yeah. So Happy New Year. Good to be together. Um, I think there's something in humans that longs for new beginnings. St. Benedict, founder of um, Monastery, said, always we begin again. There's a lot of interesting customs and celebrations of ways that people observe the new year. I um, heard that in Siberia, there's a custom where you jump into a frozen lake with a trunk, a tree trunk, how that has to do with New Year, I don't know. But in, um, in Burma, people sprinkle each other with water as a way of purifying the soul. In Armenia, one tradition is to make uh, special New Year's bread. And as you're kneading the bread, if you've ever made bread, there's a lot of uh, movement. This would not work with a, uh, a bread machine. Um, but you're kneading in good wishes and good luck into the, into the bread for folks, for your family. And then in, um, in the Philippines, people open their windows and doors to let out the uh, bad spirits and let in the, the good energy, the, uh, let out the bad energy and let, out, let in the new energy. And then in Russia, there is a tradition that on New Year's Eve, you write down what you wish for in the new year, and then you burn it, and then you take the ashes, and you put it in a glass of champagne, and then you drink it before New Year to make your wishes come true. I guess anything after that would seem good. In the United States, about a little under 50% of us make New Year's resolutions. I don't know if you guys do, and I don't want to you know, throw cold water on the party, but um, typically most people drop their resolutions before the end of January, and only 6% actually carry all the way through and fulfill their resolution. And I think you know, as we come into 2022, and the video kind of alluded to that. There's a weariness that has set in, I think, if we're being real. After two years almost of a pandemic, um, all that we've been through, um, the injustice, the brokenness of ourselves and of our world, there's just a, a, a sense of weariness. I know like people say, how are you doing, Terry? And I'm going, well, I think I'm okay. But I have a feeling that I'm gonna, sometime down the road, I'm gonna look back and say, you know what? You weren't doing as good as you thought you were that there's a, a wearing and a tearing and a, um, just a weariness. Pastor Chip in his e-note, if you get our e-notes each week, talked about how he felt like he set himself up for failure in 2021. He you know, felt like he made it to the finish line at the end of 2020 and, and acted as if the pandemic and racial injustice and all the division in our world would just magically disappear. And yet here we are with it. And so in our weariness, it's easy to be continually distracted. I, I don't know if you've heard of the term doom scrolling. I really 
love that. It's, it's when we sit on our phones and we just keep going like through the bad news and through the, the darkness. And we get obsessed and we get distracted. And so I really want this year to be not a year of distraction, but a year of devotion for me, for us, as we're starting um, a new spiritual beginning here in 2022. And so I want to focus on a word of scripture from Philippians 4a. Before we're going to talk about 1 Peter, I promise. But as a, as a sort of an antidote to maybe some of this weariness, let's look at Philippians 4.8. Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This is what God calls us to do, to focus on his word and his beauty and to think about those things, not just all the negativity that's in the world. Now, we have to deal with that. We can't hide our heads in the sand. We're not called to that. We're called to be salt and light. But we need to turn from distraction to devotion. And so we come to this, these words from 1 Peter, verses 3 to 12, that Pastor Scott read for us. Do you know those verses in the original language are one sentence? There's a lot more in the translation. Now, I was an English major way back when, when I was in college, and I think that, and I've done some professional uh, editorial work over the years before I came into ministry, and I'm sure that if I'd had that, I would have been like, you have to have some punctuation here, Peter, and you ought to break it up there. But it's one amazing, long sentence. And Peter's writing to the church, the scattered church in Asia Minor. These are people under persecution, um, part of the Roman Empire, they're really kind of exiles. They're resident aliens. They're sojourners. They're, they're living in a place, but they are not really don't have all the rights of citizens. And in fact, they are being persecuted. And that's who Peter is writing to. And I was talking with Pastor Chip about this message, and he reminded me that First Peter and Hebrews, these are letters written to people under oppression, people going through really challenging, hard times, going through suffering. And these letters are saying, hang in there. Hang in there brothers and sisters. And these, the persecution that they were undergoing, the Romans, this is what they thought of the Christians. First they said they're atheists because they don't worship their pantheon of gods. They said they're cannibals because they say we, they eat the body of Jesus, they drink the blood of Jesus, we're going to celebrate communion today. And then they thought they were incestuous because you might say to someone, I love you, brother. I love you, sister. The historian Tacitus recounts that Emperor Nero would burn Christians alive in his garden to provide light at night. He'd feed them to wild animals, Christians to wild animals, as a form of entertainment. This is the condition in which Peter is, is writing to the church. And so how does he begin? Does he begin with simply saying right out loud, hang in there? No. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He puts the whole letter in the mode of worship before he begins any instruction. Peter is so lost in the love and wonder and praise of who God is and what God does for us through the power of Jesus Christ and the resurrection that he just goes into worship. 
whatever is good, whatever is true, whatever is beautiful, whatever is commendable, think of those things. There's a lot here. We're going to focus on verse 3. I invite you in your devotional time maybe to dig a little deeper. There's so much here. I, um, some of you know I have, Joe and I have a three-year-old German shepherd named Leah. All our dogs have biblical names. It makes them holy. And so we have, you know, kind of some routines. Part of our pandemic routine is walking, you know, a lot. And we've become friends with a crossing guard named Michael. He's on our route. And as I've been talking through this week with him, uh, he knew that I was preaching on this, and he's a, he's a Christian and is uh, deep into the scriptures all the time. And I just love that he has so much enthusiasm that he'll spend 10 minutes on a street corner. I mean, he'll cross people when they're there, but he's not derelict of duties. But he just want, he's so hungry to talk about the scriptures. He's so hungry to delve into that. And so we have the new birth. And in that verse, verse 3, this is the first time I'm using my iPad and I'm very super lame at it. Okay, all right. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Note that the new birth is God's initiative. It's something that God does in us. And that's good news because look how we do with our own initiatives. Not so well. And so as we go into 2022, it's the initiative of God that he takes with the new birth for us. The new birth is talked about in, elsewhere in the New Testament in Titus and in James and, and by John. Probably the most famous example we can think of is Jesus talking to Nicodemus in John 3.3. 3. And Jesus says, you must be born from above to experience the kingdom of God. We need that new birth. When I was far from God, I, some of you who have been around here know that I had a kind of a wild growing up. I went to the original Woodstock. Um, just kind of a wild child hippie, didn't come to Christ until I was in my late 20s when Joe and I were starting our family. And in that time, if, if someone said to me, you must be born again, or I'm a born-again Christian, I'd be like, you're crazy. You're Looney Tunes. You know, this, I don't need to be born again. Being born again is for uneducated, unintelligent people. That's what I thought. I was wrong. It was for needy people. You know, a good image for me of, of being born again, I, I have a 2012 Ford Focus. And this past summer, I was uh, grocery shopping, and I go back to my car, dead as a door now. Call AAA. They can't start it. So we get it towed to the dealer. Need some module. So we get it fixed, I pick it up, and I look at my dashboard, and my car thinks it's January 1st, 2012. You can see, now it thinks it's June. My car was born again. My car went back to its beginnings. It was reset. And this is an image for me as I've come to experience the new birth and live into it because it's, yes, we're only born again once, but then it takes a lifetime, doesn't it, to grow up into the likeness of Christ. And so my car, even though it went back to the date of its birth, it didn't immediately get healed of all its, you know, rust and wear and tear. It didn't even clean itself. 
But I'm keeping the time where it is because it reminds me that we're called to a different life, a different kingdom. And even though my car still has all its dents, it does have a new beginning. And I have all the characteristics that Terry had before, but God is refining them. And God is using them for his good and taking away the brokenness bit by bit and giving healing. And so as Christians, we all need this new birth. We're all born again. It's not just for some, it's for everybody. And this new birth is a present reality, but it's also in the future. Peter talks about it as being an indefiable hope, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And it's tempting when we hear that in the future to get lost in the, you know, pie in the sky, by and by type of thing. It's just for the future. But Peter's saying it's for now. He's saying to the church then and the church now, and us as Christians, that this, this hope, this living hope, this new birth is for us now. It's operative. Jesus said the kingdom is already here in Mark 1.15. It's among us. And God is already at work. The kingdom is now, and it's also not yet. And we live in that confidence. And so we think of imperishable, undefiled. We need those words. We need to cling to those and what God gives. And so we have the new birth, but not only that, we have a living hope. God has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Hope in Bible, the Bible is not wishful thinking, it's not just an attitude, it's not optimism, but it's fixing our eyes on Jesus. It's knowing that we have a, a hope that is eternal, we know how the story ends, and we cling to that. It's an imperishable hope. Hebrews 6 says, we have this hope, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner shrine behind the curtain. And so it's not that the church is full of hope, it's they have a fixed hope. They have a sure, they have an anchor. And they can cling to that. And as I've been thinking about this message, I've been really thinking about why we need hope. Because of the suffering that we go through. And Peter's telling us that there's no way to get through suffering without a living hope. And there's no way to get through life without hope. You can't get through suffering unless you have a living hope. And in some ways, as humans, we can't, we can't live without hope. I've been going back to Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. If you know, Frankl was a Jewish psychiatrist um, went through the concentration camp, survived Auschwitz, and he became fascinated by how people dealt with the intense suffering and deprivation and hardship of being in the concentration camps. And he, as he analyzed and thought about it, he, he thought there were four kinds of responses. One response that people would have is to simply become cruel, to act like the guards, and people even that he had been friends with, people who had been kinder and gentle people in another life. They just became brutal. There was another group that just gave up. Sometimes right away, sometimes later on. He said it would often come all of a sudden that they wouldn't get out of bed, they wouldn't go to the inspection. They, no matter how they were controlled or beaten, they just gave up. And very often they just simply curled up and died. 
because they had no hope. And he says there was another group that had put their hope in hanging on. They thought, if I could just survive, if I can just live through this, and I can get back to the things that gave me hope, my, my health, my family, my position in society, my wealth, my career, my work, if I can just get through and get those back, I'll be all right. And what he found was very often with those people, because they had fixed their hope on these finite things, they were disillusioned. Very often they go into deep depression because when they got those things, it wasn't what they had hoped and thought it would be. And then he said that the last group, there were very few of them, but these were people that had a buoyancy, that were able to stay kind, have an inner liberty, and remain buoyant. Why? Frankel says that the life in the concentration camps rips open and exposes the human soul and what we put our foundations on, what we put our hope on. In some ways, and I'm not in any way saying that what we have been through in these last couple years is anything like a concentration camp. But I will say that the pandemic and all that's gone on in the world has kind of ripped off and revealed those things that our souls cling to and those things that we hang on. And so Frankel would counsel people and say, you have to put your hope in something beyond yourself, beyond these finite things, beyond family, health, situation, circumstances. You know, I, I've, my husband Joe and I have been married for 41 years. I know it's hard to believe. But if you took a look at our, our, picture, our wedding pictures and compared them to how we look now, we're a little faded. Now, I'm not trying to be morbid. But we've aged a little bit. At least Joe has. <laughs> and Joe said he's watching. I might not get dinner tonight. But if... If I put all my hope in Joe, or he put all his hope in me, and then something happens to one of us, what happens? We're devastated. We're without recourse. And, and so when we put our hope on these finite things, they're not bad things, they're good things. But that's not where our ultimate hope belongs. That's not the living hope. And in some ways, a concentration camp, Frankel says, just shows the things that we're going to lose anyway someday if we live long enough. So we have a living hope, but we also have a living hope. See, I'm being tricky here. And so he, he says, in all this you greatly rejoice. For now, a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials that even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor. Now, clearly, there's something different happening here. This is, these are not things you put together, that you have greatly rejoicing, praise, glory, and honor, and then suffering grief in all kinds of trials. And the word used for grief here is the word used in when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's crying out, and he's sorrowful, even unto death. He's experiencing this agony. In Romans 8, says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs and indeed groans 
too deep for words. The amazing thing that Peter is saying here is present tense. I told you I was an English major. Present tense, there is great suffering and great grief. And at the very same time, there is great praise and great joy, glory and honor. He doesn't say, you're going to suffer now and have joy later. He doesn't say you're going to have joy now and suffer later. He doesn't say you're suffering now, but someday in the future you'll have joy. He's saying you're having them both here at once. You might say this is impossible. How can that possibly be? But when we have this living hope inside of us that's, that's anchored to God, then we can. We can have both at the same time. Suffering is real and even inevitable, but we can have joy, even in the midst of any situation. An illustration or a, a, that has really stuck with me is Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church, Purpose Driven Life. He said some years ago that he used to think of life and the spiritual life as hill, hills and valleys, that you'd have great high moments of celebration and joy, and then you'd have low moments in the valleys where things weren't going well and you're suffering. And then there came a year when things were going great at Saddleback and Purpose Driven Life was doing well. He felt he was impacting, God was impacting so many people through the ministry. And that same year, his wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. And so he said, I began to then see that life is more like railroad tracks, not like hills and valleys, where at the very same time there can be great joy and great suffering at the very same time. Back in 1990, my brother Mike, my older brother, was in the first wave of AIDS. And at the same time, I was pregnant with our youngest son, Colin. Now, it was a high-risk pregnancy. I was near the end of the pregnancy. I couldn't travel. Mike was living in Boston. I was here in Cleveland. So I wasn't able to be with him in his last days. And here I knew my, my brother had been so close to, loved so much, was dying. And at the very same time, there was new life getting ready to come forth. And Colin's birth and Mike's death were within days of each other. Railroad tracks. Great joy, great suffering at the very same time. And so we have a living hope, but the truth is, we can't experience this living hope without a great mercy. Did you hear that? Peter is calling out the very characteristics of God. God is merciful. That is a defining characteristic of God. He's given us a new birth into a living hope through this great mercy. And this great mercy is the power that propels us into this new birth, into this living hope. God's mercy is proclaimed again and again in the scriptures. In Psalm 103, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. As far as the east is from the west... So far, he removes his transgressions from us. And in Ephesians, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By God's great mercy, we have received salvation. And because God is merciful in graciousness, when we're in God's sense of in the presence of God's holiness, we see our own sinfulness. 
and our brokenness, and we confess it. It's unfashionable to, to confess our sins. But we need to do it as we come into this new life and this new birth. And we need to remember the truth of the gospel. Tim Keller says it so well that the gospel means that we are far more wicked than we ever dared admit. And we're far more loved than we ever dared hope. And it's in that, in that gospel promise, that we can admit that we're not all we, we like to pretend we are. That we have brokenness and sinfulness and sin. And so we need to lean into that truth of the gospel. Now I said before, this is all 3 through 12 is one big sentence in the original Greek. Did you hear how it ended? Peter says, these are things into which angels long to look. The angels who are part of the heavenly host surrounding the king, there are things that even they don't know. In Hebrews 2, it says it this way. Now God did not subject the coming world about which we are speaking to angels, but someone has testified somewhere, what are human beings that you're mindful of them or mortals that you care for them? You have made them for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned them with glory and honor. Now it should be, it seems, that we, we do bad things, we know we're sinful, and we get punished. Or it should be that we follow all the rules and we get blessed. But that's not what the gospel says. And that's what angels long to look into. They don't understand it. In the Hebrew traditions, they, they said that there were some things, that, secrets that were too great that even the angels didn't know. And so the angels can't sing as we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I was found. I was blind, but now I see. The angels can't sing that. That's a reality that we live into, that we experience. This is the great mercy that's here for us. The great mercy that leads to the new birth in the living hope by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that's as operative in the world here and now as it was when he rose from the tomb 2,000 years ago. Can we take hold of that? I heard about it, Judge Tomai in New York was sitting on a case where the defendant had murdered in cold blood another young man, execution style. And he said that throughout the trial that this, the defendant had sat stony-faced and, and angry and just scowling. And then the sentencing came after a lengthy trial and the, the victim's mother and grandmother came and they wanted to speak and they didn't speak to the jury, they didn't speak to the judge, they spoke to the defendant. This is what they said. The grandmother said, you broke the golden rule, loving God with all your heart. You broke the law, loving your neighbor as yourself. I'm your neighbor, the grandmother said. I'm going to give you my address. You can write to me if you want. I'll write you back. I sat in this trial for two weeks, and the last 16 months I tried to hate you, but I couldn't. You know what? I just couldn't hate you. I forgive you. She said, I feel bad for you because you made a wrong choice. And the judge wrote this. For the first time since the trial began, the defendant's eyes lost their laser force and softened, surrendering to this nurturing, unconditional love of a mother, of a grandmother. 
The defendant's head was hanging low and I could see a tear. There was no more swagger, no more stare. The destructive and evil forces within him collapsed helplessly before this remarkable display of forgiveness and unconditional love. When we confess our sin, we're making space for the new birth. We're making space for Jesus. In the Christmas carol, A Little Town of Bethlehem, we sing, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast down our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. As we're in the beginning of 2022, let's claim that. Let's reclaim the power of that new birth into a living hope by God's great mercy and live into it. And I'm going to invite you to share in a a prayer that is from our hymnal, so our more, uh, you know, from the ages. And sometimes I turn back to prayers that have written by others that people have leaned on over the years. Sometimes I don't have words that are there. I don't know how to pray. And so I turn to these. And so I'm going to invite you to pray with me this prayer as we begin the new year and prepare to come to the communion table. Let's pray. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors, and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today, and then grow us up to be like your son as we prepare to receive the body and the blood, not as cannibals, but as worshipers of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.